I gave our Bible study group on Wednesday a little on preview of uh, the sermon topic for today, and in fact, asked their help input questions that might uh, be useful. And Seth uh, gave me a really good question, I thought, related to the biblical view of work. <clears throat> Hope I get this right, Seth. <laughs> he pointed out that it's, it's not hard to see the significance of our work when it's done before other people uh, who will become aware of our identity as Christians through our words and behavior and from the manner in which we work. But uh, what if your job entails working by yourself? Nobody else is around to, to see or observe what you're doing. And uh, that's a really good question. And as I was thinking about it, it brought to mind an illustration found in a very fine book called A Good Return, Biblical Principles for Work, Wealth, and Wisdom. Uh, a Good Return, written by uh, John Lennox, uh, who's a British citizen and a research mathematician and university teacher. And in that book, he provides an example of just that kind of situation that Seth's bringing to our attention there, uh, work that nobody sees. Several years ago, Professor Lennox wrote, he was at a meeting of young Christians, and one uh, young person in particular who uh, Lennox referred to by the name of Jeff was invited to talk before the group about his uh, own Christian faith. And he was about 20 years old and uh, relatively new to the trade of uh, being an electrician. And he talked about how happy he was when he completed his training and got his first job uh, as a bona fide electrician. He thought everything was going well. So he didn't have any concerns when after a couple of months his boss called him in for a meeting. But uh, Jeff was surprised to notice that his boss seemed quite upset, uh, even angry. Uh, and he demanded, as soon as Jeff got into the room, what have you been doing? And Jeff was really uh, surprised, sort of uh, nonplussed by that, and he said, sorry, I don't understand what you mean. And his boss said, well, you have completed the wiring of far fewer homes than your workmates. They are much faster at this than you are. And... Uh, Jeff said, well, I wasn't aware of that. I thought I'd done really good work in the time available since I was being particularly careful with the underfloor wiring. Yes, said his boss, and that is just where you got it wrong. Who sees under the floorboards anyway? Here's the question Seth asked in practical application. What does it matter how you do your work if no one sees it? This young Christian showed a maturity beyond his years in the faith, remarkable grasp of work from a biblical viewpoint, because he instantly replied, my Lord sees under the floorboards. What is a biblical view of work? Let's turn to the book of Genesis. Let's start right, right in the opening chapters of the Bible begin to unpack a biblical view of work, this activity that occupies so much of our lives. I'm going to uh, 
read verses first, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. I want you to listen for repetition here. Okay, I've said before probably more times than you like to remember. Watch for repetition in Scripture. So I'm going to ask you what's repeated here, so pay attention. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. This is the word of the Lord. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, probably right away, you notice a, a being, a name here that's repeated three times. What's that? God. Now, we're not surprised to see the name of God repeated three times. I mean, after all, the creation narrative is all about what God did, right? He is the actor throughout. He is the one doing everything. All of creation is, and in that sense, passive. So we're not surprised to see God emphasized here. What else do you see repeated here? His work that he had done. Very good. Anything else? He rested. And we could put those together. He rested from the work that he had done. One more element. Seventh day. Seventh day is repeated three times. Very good. You guys are really good students. You get an A today. What I want to focus in on is that, that phrase that Mike called attention to. His work that he had done. His work that he had done. This work is brought to our attention in the very first question of the Shorter Catechism. And I, I really like the fact that the Catechism for Kids starts out with this. So children, you listening? Answer this question, okay? Who made you? God. God made you. What else did God make? Come on, Laurel, you know what else God made? What else did God make? The earth, marigold, Clara. All things. God made all things. God made me and all things. God's work is all that has been made in the created order. There is nothing that you see that you sense with your senses that God did not make, including you. He affects that work, of course. We could go back and look in more detail. He affects that work by his word, by his very thought, we could say. We also see the verb shaping or forming used. And we see God ordering. Okay, so he brings things into being. He orders them. He shapes them. All that is his work. And it is that work then that this passage tells us he rests from. The word rest here means to cease. So it's said in contrast to his work. He ceases from his work. 
Now, a couple of things are implied by this. One thing that's implied is God's work is complete. It's not a halfway job. God didn't have to come back later and say, whoops, forgot to make that. Forgot to bring that into being. <laughs> it's complete. And we can also go back and look in, in chapter 1 and notice that his work is perfect. Repeatedly, we're told in Genesis chapter 1, his work is good. And at the end, he looks at everything he's made and it's all very good. So his work is complete. His work is good. And now he rests. And what does that tell us? Well, the fact that God rested from his initial work of creation tells us the work is not to be constant for us. There is to be a rhythm of work and rest. And, of course, we see that, as you've already noticed, in the attention paid to the seventh day here. This is part of the reason why the creation narrative is given, us, given to us in a pattern of six days of work and seventh day of rest. Did God need six days because it was too much for him to get done in one? Did, 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 he, did he get partway through it? Oh, I better put off the next thing till the next day. I'm out of time or I have to recharge my battery. Of course not. So a big part of the reason why why we have creation, the creation narrative in this pattern of six days and seventh day of rest is for us, it's for you. Okay, you need this. God created the seven-day week, and notice, by the way, that is the only time measurement that is abstractly imposed upon creation. Okay? I mean, day is determined by rotation of the sun around the uh, er, day is let <laughs> me back up my mind's getting ahead of me day is established on the cycle of sunrise and sunset right month is established on the cycle of the moon years established on the revolution of the earth around the sun all those are natural phenomena a, week, a seven day week is not God arbitrarily imposes that on creation, on you, on purpose. You need rest. You need rest physically. You're not omnipotent like God. God does not need to rest. Okay? He, he is not in the least tired. Okay? But you get tired. And in fact, your common sense tells you, and science bears it out, that if you neglect that reality and you try to work all the time, 24-7, you are going to become exhausted. You're probably going to collapse physically. So you need rest physically. Don't make work your idol. That's what the workaholic is doing. He's making work his idol, and really, in a sense, he's making himself God. Because he's saying, you know, I've got to provide for myself, and that's going to take 24-7. I have certain goals for myself. I have certain desires, wants. It's going to take me working constantly to reach those. 
So he is choosing, the workaholic is choosing to put himself in the place of God. God said, work and then rest. You need that. The end of it. Denying that is destruction. But you also need rest spiritually. You need more than just physical rest. You need spiritual rest. You need a weekly reminder of theological truth. Seventh day gives you that. One day in seven tells you God is creator, not me. He is sovereign over all that he has made, not me. And so I set apart one day out of seven. By faith, believing, he's going to enable me to have what I need, my daily bread that we prayed for a few minutes ago. He's going to enable me to get that in the six days. I'm not going to have to work seven days like a dog to get it. I believe he's going to provide for my needs. It's a profession of faith in a sense. Resting on the Lord's day is a profession of faith in his provision for you. You're believing that he's going to bless the work of your mind and hands on those other six days and make them productive, make them sufficient for your needs. In that sense, it can sort of be a curb on your consumer desires too, can it? And let's note one more thing before we leave this this text for another. And here's the place where you want to notice the context, particularly the place that we are in terms of the history of God's work in, in this world. Notice, are we before or after the entrance of sin? into the human race. We're before. Now what does that tell us about work? That tells us that work in itself, work as work is not evil. In fact, we'd say on the basis of Genesis chapter 1 in our text that work as God intended it to be, is a good. It's good. You were created with the capacity, even in need, for work. It is a good thing. Now, it gets corrupted by the fall. Okay, human sin corrupts everything. There's nothing good that we as sinful human beings can't twist and, and corrupt into something bad, okay? C.S. Lewis points that out when he says Satan can't really create something new that is evil. All he can take is what is good and make it bad. And we do that so often with work, don't we? And it becomes a burden. It becomes oppressive. It becomes a means that we oppress other people. But in and of itself, work is a good thing. It's a part of God's original pattern for your life human existence. God works, and so we follow his example in working, 
we follow his command in working, and that leads us to Exodus chapter 20 for our next test. So go, text. So go to the next book in the Bible, Exodus chapter 20. The ten words that form the center of God's covenant with Israel. And we're going to look, as you could probably guess, at the commandment beginning at verse 8 of Exodus chapter 20. So this too is the word of the Lord to us. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do no, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now notice that, that this text begins with the call for you to remember. That's a really important thing in Scripture. I'll always notice when you're called to remember something. So God's people are told here to remember every seventh day and sanctify it. And, of course, that's, that's pulling right from the text in Genesis that we just looked at, isn't it? You remember God's creative work by setting aside each seventh day as different from the others. That's what sanctify means. It means to set it aside, set it apart, make it distinguished from other things. So you are to treat each seventh day as different from those other six days. You treat it as a holy day, a holiday before God. Then our text in Exodus goes on to describe exactly how you are to do this remembering and sanctifying of the Lord's holiday. We're a bit surprised then, maybe, when we notice that the command begins with work. You notice that? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and we expect, well, he's going to go into talking about the seventh day, but instead he says, six days you shall labor and do all your work. To properly observe the fourth commandment, you better be working the other six days. That's what he's saying, right? So you work for six days, then you're able to set aside that seventh day. It's not going to be different if you're loafing all the days, right? So, so, so you're supposed to work. But you're really to really rest when you get to that seventh day. You're not, you're not just to partly work. Now, of course, in, a, in, in the world as it is, there are times when, we, when we're required by an employer to work on the Lord's Day. Uh, we can all empathize with Joe today. He's got to go in and do inventory. <laughs> you know, my wife works as a nurse. She sometimes had to work, as, work on Sundays, I'm sure, uh, sure that Shirley did as well. So, so there are times that... that that we're required to be employed on the Lord's Day. But we're to seek as much as possible to obey this 
command of the Lord to bring rest into our lives and to bring it in the lives of others within our household. Do you notice this is a household law? God's really speaking primarily to the heads of the household here, to the fathers. You make sure that you don't work, but you make sure that your wife doesn't work, your kids don't work, your servants don't work. I don't even want your work animals to work. <laughs> My wife and I sort of made a homely application of this when the boys were still home and said they don't have to make their beds. And we didn't make our bed either on, on Sunday. Okay? They, they had to make their bed all the other days of the week, but they didn't have to make it on Sunday. And the boys and I would cook supper uh, on Sundays, so Susan didn't have to do that because she was doing that all the other days. Try, try to get creative, you know, in your household in making this day different. Now notice, in this and the previous text, work has nothing to do with getting a paycheck has nothing to do with money, the definition for work in the Bible. Right? A biblical view of work centers on the using of both your mind and your body in productive ways as God's stewards of the world. Let's think back to Genesis 1 for a moment to the mandate that God gave to the human race. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That includes everything from sexual procreation and care of children to agriculture to manufacturing to government service. Every morally upright occupation is a legitimate fulfillment of this calling. I notice as well that the purpose of work is not self fulfillment. I'm focusing on both of these, money and self-fulfillment, because that's what our culture tells us work is about, right? It's about making money and about self-fulfillment. But that's not biblical. Your aim in work as a Christian is not to follow your heart or your dreams or whatever else they tell you to pursue these days. Your goal in work is not, is not to make enough money so you can quit work. Biblical theology teaches us that work is done in obedience to God's word. And therefore, the chief end of work, as of all your life, is the glory of God. There's your motivator. There may or may not be money involved. There may be all kinds of different things that you do from time to time. But the chief end of work is the glory of God. At times your work is going to be hard, it's going to be lonely, maybe dangerous, maybe frustrating. But if your motive and goal is God's glory, you'll always have the joy of pleasing your real boss. Don't miss the significance of the command 
to work being a following of God's example as well. We mentioned that earlier. So in that sense, the work of your hands and minds is a powerful way that you're reflecting the image of God in you. So work has a nobility. Okay, work has a, a value. We, we live in a society where the elite are distinguished by being above work. They're, they're actually impaired by that. They're failing to reflect God's image because they are abstaining from work. Work is something to be thankful for and grateful for. You think and speak creatively, you're imitating God and speaking creation into existence, right? If your work involves ordering things, uh, setting a household in order, or creating order in the workplace, you're following God's example of ordering things, right? If your job in, involves shaping things, making things out of raw materials, then your work imitates God in that as you make things that are beautiful and useful as he made things that are beautiful and useful. And there's another sense in which I want you to think of your work as following the example, command of God. And for that, let's go to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 5, where the ten words are repeated. Deuteronomy chapter 5. God gives the ten words once again to the new generation of Israelites. But when we compare the ten words of God in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, in particular in regards to the fourth commandment, we notice that something happens in a literary sense here. There is a parallelism created with a variation. It's another good thing to look for when you're studying scripture. Go to verse 12 of Deuteronomy chapter 5 and listen for what's similar and different. Here again, then, is the Lord's word to us. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. Sounds very similar. A little change there, observe instead of remember, but pretty similar. One of you should not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. A little bit added there for emphasis, but basically the same. But here's where it gets different. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Previously, in, in the first 10 words, we were given as the basis for those 10 words, God's work in creation and his ordaining a day of rest. 
Here, however, we have a different element brought in, a, a remembering of God's saving or redeeming work. That's a work he does too, right? Your six days of working and one day of resting is inspired, is motivated, is made meaningful by your remembering that you were a slave in a foreign land. Yahweh delivered you by the mighty working of his power. You are a slave to sin. Never a day of rest. And the wages of sin is eternal death. You are working for your own death. All your works were works of sin and were called down upon you the wrath of God. You are in a hopeless Situation, But before you ever thought of him, the triune God had determined to accomplish his work of redemption for your salvation. God's work of creation and his work of redemption are intimately connected. God's redemptive work through Christ was the most powerful work ever done. For it didn't merely create something out of nothing. I mean, that's incredible enough, as it is, right? That is the sticking point for all theories of, revolu of evolution, isn't it? Because you can't get something out of nothing. But that was the power of God's initial creative work. He created all that is out of nothing. But there is an even greater power seen in his work of redemption because he takes sinners like you and makes you saints. You aren't just in a neutral position when he comes along. You're in debt, right? You're not just not good, you're bad. And his work of redemption sanctifies you. That is the most powerful work ever done. And of course, it was affected by the death of the Son of God himself. As he crushed the head of the serpent, as he died the death that you should have died and was resurrected and ascended to glory. The work of God that calls into being a people for himself, that's the church, that's the body of Christ, is the most beautiful and glorious work ever done as well. For it calls forth the adoration and worship of not only earth, but heaven as well. So it's the redemptive work of God that fuels, adds to your desire to work as he worked. So your work wants to reflect that redemptive quality. Now, I'm not saying at all here that your work saves you or anybody else. But there should be a redemptive quality to it. Your work should be a redeeming of time, as you take time that would otherwise be wasted, frittered away, and, and you, you spend that time in worthwhile occupations. Your mental and physical labors may be said to have a redeeming effect on the earth, as you take thorny fields and you get a harvest from them. 
as you provide shelter for people in hostile environments like a New England winter, as you overcome laziness and ignorance in yourself by learning, self-discipline, all of these realms of mental and physical work pleasing to God are the necessary earthly environment for the growth of the assembly of God's people that is the church. How can the church grow and thrive if people have no food, shelter, or clothing? How can God be glorified in worship without the exercise of musical gifts and composing music, playing of instruments, and singing? How can God's people grow in grace without the study of language and literature to enable them to understand and apply God's word? Your work fits into all of that. But before we leave the fourth commandment here in this text, we want to know one more important fact. And that is that neither this commandment nor the text in Genesis chapter 2 set up any distinction between different kinds of work. There is no division of work into sacred and secular, holy and unholy. I grew up in a church and a family culture that distinguished between regular jobs and what was frequently called full-time Christian service, which meant working as a pastor or missionary. Young people in particular were repeatedly asked whether they felt the call to full-time Christian service. They were told that if they had that feeling, they should make a public commitment to that effect in front of the congregation during what were referred to as altar calls. How many of those altar calls I sweated through? Do I have that feeling? I don't know, maybe I do. Feeling a little bit like that right now? No, I don't think so. I don't want to walk up in front of all those people. The clear impression given was that those who felt and responded to this call to full-time Christian service were sort of going up a notch in the Christian community. My mother was the first of her family to make a profession of faith, was very sincere in her faith, a godly woman. And so it wasn't surprising that in that kind of a culture, she, she felt that she had that call, full-time Christian service. And her pastor and his wife said, well, you're a woman, so you got two options here. You can either be a missionary, you can marry a preacher. And it just happens we know a preacher who's, who's currently available. So they called him to preach a series revival, so-called revival services at the church. Matchmaking worked. He got married. My mother's dreams come true. She's a full-time Christian worker. Well, except for when she's keeping house and raising two boys. <laughs> so she's involved in church work, teaching, playing the piano, teaching others to play the piano, stuff like that. I never pointed this out to my mother. It would have not been respectful or nice at all. But the irony is everything she did in church service, she could have done without being married to my father. <laughs> and maybe she would have had more time to do it if she hadn't been married to him. 
More importantly, that theology is dead wrong. My fundamentalist Baptist upbringing and Roman Catholic teaching are wrong when they say that there are sacred callings and there are secular callings. That is not biblical. Now somebody's going to say, yeah, but, but, but there is a whole tribe of priests under the Old Covenant. Indeed there was. And that was the Old Covenant. That was a temporary, temporary covenant. And we learn, think, we learn things from that distinction in that covenant. But you're not under the Old Covenant. If you are, you need to go find a priest to start killing animals. You're in the New Covenant. And remember we looked a couple of weeks ago at the fact that you are all priests. There is no distinction between sacred and secular under the New Covenant. Martin Luther says what seems to be secular works are actually the praise of God and represent an obedience which is well-pleasing to him. Bishop Hugh Latimer, an English reformer who was burnt at the stake in Oxford for his faith, said, Our Savior Christ was a carpenter, and God is living with great labor. Therefore, let no man disdain to follow him in a common calling and occupation, for as he blessed our nature with taking upon him the shape of man, so in his doing he blessed all occupations and arts. Dorothy Sayers, accomplished writer in several genres, especially known for her mystery writing, wrote a delightful and insightful essay called Why Work? In that essay she says this, when a man or woman is called to a particular job of so-called secular work, that is as true a vocation as though he or she were called to specifically religious work. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, in his profession or trade, not outside it. I like this quote from Elizabeth Elliot, who is a missionary to South American jungle tribe that murdered her husband. She wrote, my house, my kitchen, my desk, she was a writer, my very body are meant to be holy places in this world for the eternal God. All work done under the calling of God is holy. And perhaps we should interrupt there at that, this point just for a moment and point out that this theology assumes that your work is done as one who has answered the call of Christ to repent of your sin, to die to your self-centeredness and to live as his student, his disciple. Os Guinness, an English author and social critic, Alice in America says, neither work nor career can be fully satisfying without a deeper sense of call. But calling itself 
is empty and indistinguishable from work unless there is someone who calls. First and foremost, we are called to someone that is God, not something. So the question you need to ask yourself is, have you heard and responded to Jesus' call as your Lord, as your ultimate boss and master? Once again, it goes on to say, do you allow money to dominate your priorities, assessments, relationships, and time? Do you allow consumer society to contrive your wants? Or do you do what you do above all for God's sake and the sheer love of it? Are you so free from anxiety about money that you can be carefree in giving to those in need? Listen to Jesus of Nazareth. Answer his call. Now, if you've answered that call, your work is going to be transformed. And if we had, if we had time, we'd go to two more passages that I've got here. <laughs> well, we don't. So I want to leave you with this. I want you to, I want you to look for opportunities that God gives you providentially as his followers to work to fulfill your calling in Christ. Now, again, remember, this is not about making money, okay? This could be in your home, in your community. It could be a hundred different places. Look for those things that are creative, that, that employ your mind or hands in a way that pleases God. Let me give you another quote from Dorothy Sayers here. Work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the thing in which he finds spiritual, mental, and bodily satisfaction, and the medium in which he offers himself to God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Look for those divine appointments that God gives you in the context of whatever work you're doing in your home, out in the yard, in the community, on the job. John Lennox, who I quoted earlier, gave an example of this from his own experience as a teacher. He taught math at the university level. Of course, he gave a lot of homework. He said he was sometimes appalled at the lack of effort that some students put on it. Once he, he got a homework assignment, and, and he, this is the worst I've ever seen. This is pathetic. Now, this student is capable of much better than this. I've seen her do this, this much better than this. He was, he was ready to really go at her. And then he got to thinking, okay, God, you've given me this job. Okay, I, I want to serve you here. So maybe I need to be a little more thoughtful in approaching this situation. 
So when he, he put the work before the student and, and he just said, you know, I've never in the past had homework as bad as this from you. And before I say anything about it, I would just like to ask if anything has happened that would explain why it's like this. The student began to get tears in her eyes. Said, Dad came home last night. And my mom quite brutally shouted that he was leaving her. He stomped out and was gone. I have to cope with my devastated mom. I'm sorry. It changed the whole situation, didn't it? And Lennox had an opportunity to speak words of comfort into that girl's life. And it led to his opp an opportunity for him to share the gospel with her. Look for something like that. Or maybe it'll be your example. I interviewed a woman named Tina for a teaching position at Heritage Christian School this past summer. Asked her about her own Christian pilgrimage, and she said, well, I, I grew up in a home where the parents fought all the time, wasn't, weren't Christian at all. It was a pretty unhappy childhood. I, w I wasn't very happy myself. But I got a job, my first job, working in a restaurant, and I was working with this young woman. We were like there at the crack of dawn to open up in the morning and I was always dragging and she was always humming, sort of singing these songs. Tina said, finally I asked her, what are you singing? What are you humming all the time? She said, oh, it's Christian praise songs. Just sort of left it at that. But as Tina worked with that other girl, and, and that girl befriended her, she began to learn about the Christ who was being addressed in those praise songs. And it changed Tina's life forever. So maybe it's your example that God's going to use. Be a worker for the glory of God. Whatever you do, Let's pray. Holy Father, we are so grateful that you are God who works. You work to create all things. You worked to redeem us. And what a miracle that is. Help us, Lord, to be your working people. Not to work for money, not to work to satisfy the latest thing that's out there we're being told we should buy. Not to work to somehow build ourselves up, to make ourselves look good. Lord, help us to learn to work in our homes, in the workplace, in the community. Help us to learn to work for the joy of serving you. Help us to seek your glory in our work. And we trust that you will bless it to your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.